0: hey everybody welcome uh so this is going to be the uh kind of companion podcast to the the short mock test that was on uh, the google classroom so hopefully you've taken that before listening to this and uh while i ramble on here for a few minutes grab the test or pull it up so you can follow along and see how you did and all that kind of good stuff so what's gonna what, what i'm gonna do in the essence of time is uh i'm going to i'm gonna read through the question and then I'm going to explain the answer and any content-related issues from there. If it's a question like, for example, seven through nine was from a passage and it's about pluralism, I'm going to explain pluralism, but I'm not going to constantly go back to the from the question to the passage, passage to the question about the interpretation because really it's it's on you to interpret and find the answers. Now, if that makes sense to you, so uh, just without that visual, I think is going to be difficult on the podcast to, uh, to go through and do something like that. So some of the questions I might go more in depth than the others, but if there's a question you want to talk about, you're not sure about, I didn't answer well enough or whatever it might be, please find me and let's figure it out together. Alrighty. So the plan right now, uh, I'm going to break this into two. Uh, Unless I am going along pretty good, then I might, just do all of it. We'll see how we are. I don't want to, you do a thirty-minute recording here uh, on this thing, but uh, we'll see where we're at. You know, if I need to break into two, I'll break it into two. Quick reminder: uh, the multiple choice testing, te- uh, multiple choice section of the test. Sorry about that. will have four types of questions: quantitative analysis, text-based analysis, visual source analysis, and individual multiple choice questions. Uh, pretty simply, the quantitative is your charts and graphs where you have to look and interpret, maybe draw some conclusions based on the data and find the best answer that supports your conclusion. Text-based is going to be those passages that you read uh, and then either answer questions directly from or make some interpretations based on the data uh, or the, the source. And then visuals, those are your maps, uh, your political cartoons, images, and things like that that you'll have to answer some questions about. Once again, potentially you know, some conclusions that you draw uh, making some inferences about what you see and things like that. It's not always going to be straightforward, uh, really geared toward making you think a little bit uh, on this test. Uh, and then the, the final one is kind of your straightforward questions. Like the first one on your, your test is kind of going to be like the multiple choice questions that are, have no stimulus. So let's jump into this and get rolling. So number one uh, was about a House of Representatives member who had concerns from her constituents but decided to vote what she thought was best righty The answer is going to be C, the trustee model. Uh, there are two, well three types of models, the trustee and the delegate, and then the Politico. The trustee, which is the answer, this is where a representative, whether it be a House member or senator, is going to do what they think is best, no matter what their constituents say or want. The idea here is, hey, you voted for me, you put me in office. You trusted me to make these decisions. Now I'm going to make them based on what I think is best for you. All righty. The delegate is the opposite. The delegate is going to make decisions based on what the constituents wants, regardless of how their personal feelings are as a representative. All righty. And then finally it's Politico, and that's where they're going to combine the two. Most politicians are probably going to be at the Politico because they're going to use the trustee when it's a small matter and it's not going to gain a lot of attention. And then they're going to use the delegate when it's a large matter that's going to draw lots of attention. So that is number one. Number two uh, was the side by side type of question. It was Fed 10 and Brutus, and uh, it was a comparison of the two. And so you had to find the correct line that had both the correct answers uh, for both Fed 10 and Brutus. Now, for this type of question, uh, go through and, and you know, if you're like, oh, I don't know anything about Brutus, then go through Fed 10 and find all the things that you know are incorrect. Like, for example, D says the effects of factions cannot be controlled. Well, no, we know that Fed 10 is all about controlling factions, so that can't be it. So if that's not it, then we know it can't be Brutus for D. So you've just crossed out one because you knew something about Fed 10 or vice versa. So take some time with these questions and try and sort it out and look for all the things that are wrong. So the correct answer here is B, factions are most dangerous at the local level. And then Brutus 1 says small republics are best for stable governments. Okay, so once again, if you don't know anything, then try and pick out the things that you know can't be right. Number three and four dealt with a chart on the relationship between views on civil liberties and gun ownership. This was a uh, survey that was given by the Pew Research. And so the first one says, according to the data, both gun owners and non-gun owners, and then you have to pick out what answer you think is correct. The correct answer is C, choose freedom of speech as most crucial to their own liberty. So the way the chart is set up, hopefully you're looking at it, Uh, you've got freedom of speech, right to vote, right to privacy, freedom of religion, and then the right to own guns. The first four, speech through religion, are all very close, all right? Uh, And then freedom of speech, the responses were in the 90s versus the other ones, which were all in the mostly in the 80s. So you can make a pretty good argument that freedom of speech is pretty, stands out as the uh, most crucial in this, in this poll, according to the, the people who took the poll. Now, Number four says, which of the following best explains how poll respondents regard their relationship between the right to own guns and personal freedom? Now, this is a question It's not going to stand out. The first one stood out pretty easily. All right, You should be able to see freedom of speech as the correct answer pretty quickly and easily. They're just looking at the chart. Number four, you have to make some inferences. You have to make some decisions based on you know, what the question is and then what the data says. Now, the answer is A. The poll shows there is an ongoing debate over whether gun control laws promote or interfere with individual rights. Now, for this question, if you like, oh, I don't know, then read through it and see if you can figure out things that are you know, pretty different. So, like, for example, B says the poll shows that gun owners and non-gun owners have widely different views over a range of civil liberties issues. Well, that can't be right, because if you look at all the other civil liberties issues, they're all within three points of each other. 92 to 94, 89 92, 86 89, 85 to 88. The only one that's wildly different is the right to own guns, and that's 35 to 74 as the range. So we know that it can't be B. So you can do some you know, crossing out here and get your choices down to where you, where, where you can make a, if you don't know anything, a better guess. All righty. So that's number four. Once again, was A? Number five, which of the following powers allows both the feds and the state governments to make policies involving taxation? Ugh, taxation. You know I hate it. Uh, but that is concurrent powers. So number A or letter A, excuse me. Uh, concurrent powers are the powers that are shared. All right. So that is the powers that are shared. Uh, implied powers. Those are powers that are kind of interpreted from the Constitution. It says this, so we think we can do it. And then the enumerated powers are those that are expressly. You might see it as express powers. Those are the ones that are specifically stated in the Constitution. Number six, which of the following ways could the president try to limit the impact of a Supreme Court decision? So the the court makes a decision that the president does not agree with. All right. So the answer is B, instructing the Department of Justice to not enforce a provision of the decision. So this is the big thing. uh, And one of the reasons that the Supreme Court and the courts in general are considered the weakest branch. Because they have to depend on the other branches to do Or to enforce, I guess is a better way to say it, their decisions. Okay, let's break down the other answers though, because they all have some wrong parts to them. First off, (laughs) excuse me. First off, calling for the removal of the Supreme Court justices. Okay, the president can publicly say, "I don't like this judge. I don't like the decisions they make," but they're not going to be able to, you know, remove the 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 Supreme Court justice the president has no power, no authority there. Now, they could use their bully pulpit and say, man, this, this judge is horrible. We need to get him out of there. But it's just one person's opinion. it had to be Congress that would have to decide, hey, this judge has done something wrong because judges serve lifetime terms as long as they're good behavior. Okay. C says to pass legislation that overrides the court's opinion. Now, this is something that Congress can do. Congress can pass legislation That overrides the court's opinion. However, the president cannot, and the question is very specific about it being the president limiting the impact of a Supreme Court decision. So the president cannot pass legislation that overrides that opinion. And then D, changing the jurisdiction of the court. Once again, this is wrong because the the jurisdiction of the court can only be changed by Congress. The president cannot do that. Now, can the president ask Congress to do some of these things? Sure, but they can't do it on their own. It's up to Congress to do, and it's not going to happen very often, okay? All right, questions seven through nine comes from the excerpt. I, I talked about this one at the beginning. I'm, I'm not going to constantly go back and forth. I'm going to talk about pluralism, but I'm not going to go back and forth to this long passage, It's two paragraphs, uh, and with three questions. So I'm going to give you the answers, and some of these are your interpretation, so just keep that in mind. Be sure you take a look at the, the passage and try and figure out if you can find where the answer came from and all that kind of stuff. So number seven, which of the following best captures the author's argument regarding the forms of democracy? And C is pluralist democracy, uh, though it involves groups at different stages of the process of developing policy, excludes a significant portion of the population. So remember, pluralism is all about the groups and all those groups trying to find a uh, foothold with the government. Number eight, which of the following statements about interest groups would the author most likely agree with? Now, for this one, once again, you're going to have to make some inferences here. The answer is C. Interest groups tend to overrepresent elite interests. Now, you should be able to find that somewhere in the passage uh, based on some of the stuff that's, that's written from this passage. Uh, but once again, you have to interpret uh, what is written uh, to make that answer work. Okay. And then finally, which of the following activities would the author most likely be concerned about interest groups engaging in? And the answer is D, forming iron triangles with bureaucratic agencies and congressional committees. Now for this one, once again, you got to make some inferences. It doesn't say, if I remember correctly, like I said, I'm not going back and forth, um, but I don't think it says anything about iron triangles in there. So that, but that's a concern. Uh, for people with interest groups because they do, and this is something that happens is they make these uh, agreements, they I should not agreements. they make these relationships happen with the bureaucratic agencies and the congressional committees. If you don't remember Iron Triangles, uh, it is just the relationship between congressional committees, bureaucratic agencies, and interest groups. And it's a, it's a working relationship. And usually there's some give and take, and there's a lot of good that comes from it because they do work together. Yeah, because typically you're not going to have a, a good working relationship with, with groups that you don't get along with. So if it's an interest group that's kind of um, looking to, 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 to cause problems and things like that, they're probably not going to have a good relationship with the bureaucratic agency. And the congressional committee members are probably aren't going to work with them uh, if they have that kind of relationship. All right, number 10. According to the U.S. Constitution, all revenues, all revenue bills have to, and the answer is B, originate in the House of Representatives. So remember this. The House is supposed to be closer to us, the people, constituents, the citizenry, all right, because they represent less people than the Senate. The Senate, remember, is going to represent a whole state. So they, <clears throat> and when I say they, the founding fathers decided we need to get uh, all revenue stuff to start on the House because they they should have a better idea, a better understanding of what the people need and want. Number 11, which of the following illustrates an economic policy most likely supported by an ideologically liberal individual. Now, the answer is B, Congress increasing the minimum wage. And I think that pretty much stands out because a liberal individual is probably going to be pro-worker, okay? And increasing the minimum wage is going to help the worker. Now, the other ones, Federal Reserve increasing state uh, interest rates, that's going to hurt individuals because that's going to make it more expensive to buy a car, to buy a house, and, and whatever it might be. Uh, C, a bill that would decrease funding for the food stamp program. Well, that's not something that a, a liberal individual would want to do. They'd want to increase funding versus decreasing. And then uh, a state lowering income taxes to attract businesses. Uh, typically, uh, you know, in just overall, liberal is going to not want to lower taxes on businesses. They would prefer to to, to raise them. All right, twelve and thirteen refer to a political cartoon, and the political cartoon. Hopefully, you're looking at it, but it has some uh, Congress people, some senators to be exact, uh, in some jumpsuits with brand names all over them. Okay, and it's it's sort of like a NASCAR where they have all the the all the sponsors on their their jumpsuits. And question twelve says, which of the following is the best interpretation of the political cartoon? And the answer is C, members of Congress receive political contributions from many special interest groups. So hopefully you'll be able to figure this out by looking at the cartoon, or hopefully you did figure it out. Uh, Why is the other ones wrong? Well, A says members of Congress are richer than the people they represent. That may be true, and I know they're richer than me, but uh, for the cartoon, that's not what this is getting at, okay? These campaign these, uh, not campaign, excuse me, the the contributions do not go into their pocket. Hopefully they don't. They go into their campaigns. And so uh, it's not going to really contribute that way. All righty. Uh, B says members of Congress represent a wide diversity of political and economic interests. That's very true, but it has nothing to do with them taking money from sponsors. And then finally, D, members of Congress are specialists in economic policy issues. And that's just a flat out nope. Okay. Because uh, well they're just not always the specialists we would like for them to be and really the cartoon has nothing to do with economic policy issues number 13 says which of the following supreme court cases is most related to the topic in the cartoon now this is going to have to be some of that required court case knowledge and the answer is going to be d citizens united versus fec remember this is the one that tied campaign contributions to free speech all right and so this cartoon if you're looking at it would show, hey, these people can take money from these groups and it be counted as free speech. Number 14, which of the following arguments best supports a claim that the Electoral College violates democratic principles? So the answer is C, smaller states are disproportionately advantaged by the two additional electoral votes guaranteed or granted, excuse me, granted to each state for its senators. What does that mean? Well, um, small states there's the argument that small states um have an advantage here because of the whole and it's not because they have so many votes but what we're talking about here sort of like goes with the the representation stuff that we talked about uh, with baker versus carr remember you don't want to have under representation or over representation you want to keep everything as equal as possible and so c is saying those the, the smaller states are overrepresented because of that. And so it gives them advantage. All right. So that's what that's getting at. Let's unpack the other answers though, real quick. Uh, A says the winner-take-all system encourages candidates to campaign in every state, which limits the attention each state will receive from the candidates. Well, that's not true because the winner-take-all system encourages you to go visit the larger states. All right. Uh, and really kind of bypass the smaller states because they don't have as many votes. B, electors are chosen by the voters in each state, which gives parties undue influence over candidate success. Electors are not chosen by voters, okay? Uh, they're chosen by the parties. And then D, the electoral college lacks transparency because electors frequently switch their vote during the national convention. Well, that's not true. The electoral college vote happens after the convention, and it happens during uh, after the popular vote. So that's not something that's true there. Once again, always use the process of elimination if you're not sure of something. Take out the stuff that you know can't be true. All right, 15, which of the following best describes the holding in Baker versus Carr? So we just talked about that. Uh, And the answer is A, unequal representation of citizens in legislative districts is unconstitutional. And maybe review by the courts. So, I didn't really touch on this part, but remember uh, up to this point, the courts had really stayed out of redistricting cases. They did not want to get involved because they said that's a political issue. It is not an issue for the courts until the 1960, whatever it was, uh, Baker versus Carr decision. Okay. Uh, so, real quick, let's unpack the other answers. B political issues such as reapportionment, redistricting, and gerrymandering are to be resolved by the legislative branch. Sort of true, uh, but that's something they used in the past. And um, it's going to be typically not just the legislative branch uh, that would be involved there, because you'd have the states involved there as well. In fact, that's a state issue is the redistricting. It's not the legislative branch. Uh, C, racial gerrymandering is a violation of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Uh, That is true, uh, but it has nothing to do with Baker versus Carr. Okay, Baker versus Carr was about the unequal representation. And then finally, D, gerrymandering that favors a single party is not subject to legal action because there's no standard to determine how a state legislative district map should be drawn. Well, that's not true uh, because gerrymandering can face legal action, regardless of of who drew it or what happened. Okay, We're coming up on the 20-minute mark, so I'm going to try and get just a couple more questions in, and then I'll finish this uh, on a second part. So if you're listening up to this point, uh, that's what I'm going to try and do. So I'll probably do 16 and 17 here, and then we'll stop, and I'll do a second recording so that people that don't want to listen to the full thing don't have to. All right, so questions 16 and 17 refer to a graph about registered voters in the U.S. and uh, the social media aspect of it, okay? So 16 says, which of the following statements is reflected in the data in the chart? Now, the answer is B. Among registered voters, there was a steep increase in social media usage uh, to follow political figures across all age groups and party affiliations. And if you take a look at it, there is. It's pretty obvious. Uh, The data goes from 2010 to 2014, and every single... Demographic that they look at had a pretty big increase. Okay, um, so sixteen I think kind of stands out for the correct answer. Seventeen, which of the following is a potential consequence of the trend illustrated in the chart? Now, this is something that you have to make a conclusion, an inference. The answer is not going to stand out to you. You're going to have to, hey, I got to think about this. All right, and the answer is B. Elected officials and candidates running for offices are increasingly using social media to reach out to voters and constituents. Now, how can we make that conclusion? Well, because the number of constituents that are following social media uh, candidates and politicians' social media has increased. So because of that, more people are using it, okay? And because more people are using it, more people are getting on social media. And so there's a a, kind of an endless circle there, all righty? A... Well, I'm going to stop here.